Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Performance Anxiety, proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. This show expands on my continuing fascination with the band Swans. I'm joined by Jarbo. She was one of the longest tenured members of Swans outside of founder Michael Girard, but she also has a prolific solo career that extends beyond music. Jarbo shares some truly wild stories of touring with Swans that include getting smuggled into Eastern Bloc countries by political dissidents, riots in Germany when their shows were cut short, and sometimes just being a dork. She also talks about the inspiration behind her latest album, Illusory. And she's not hard to find on social media. Just search Living Jarbo. You can't miss her. Follow us at Performance ANX on the socials. Subscribe, rate, review, and if you like the show, consider supporting us through Kofi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. You can do a one-time donation or a recurring one. Now let's dive right into Jarbo on performance anxiety. Uh, okay. Okay, yeah, uh, my name is Jarbo, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. Uh, my website is thelivingjarbo.com. Hi, Jarbo. Hi. Hi, how are you? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. How is everyone right now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I'm announced that, you know, uh, various interviews I've done uh, since the release of the loser. And I, I think... Uh, I think the best answer I gave was, um, that's the existential question, is it not? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, what, you know, it's been like for me is, is, um, what I hear, uh, other people, uh, friends, um, saying the same thing for them, that there's good days and bad days because it is a, a, a you know, an experience that none of us have ever had before. So, yes. so it's, um, you know, it's up and down. Yeah, it, it, it <laughs> the, is. The fear factor, the fear factor, of course, is is a big problem, as well as the ennui. Yeah. And of course, uh, now my new concern is I'm looking online to buy, uh, you know, one of the shields because I've been wearing medical grade mask when I have to go out. Yes. But if I'm forced to go stand in line to vote because of some kind of a uh, um, corruption of uh, you know, messing with the post office for for voting in the mail, then of course I will have to be doing that. So I'm going to be armed. I'm going to have a medical grade mask, shield. Yeah, I'm going to be completely armed, just like my friend is a nurse in Seattle. She says, "Oh, well, that's how we 
you know, arm ourselves when we are, are treating COVID patients. So yeah. I'll be, you know, because because nothing is stopping me from voting. Oh no! Earthquake, a bomb, bomb <laughs> going on, stopping me from voting. <laughs> Everybody shouldn't do that. Everybody needs to do that. Yes. But I, mean, I, I haven't, I haven't missed um, an election since I was of legal age to vote. Uh, even all the touring I've done, I've, I've voted oh, wow. absentee ballot. So I've, I'm, uh, and of course I've done, uh, done many, many, uh, done a lot of work for, for campaigns, uh, all Democrat campaigns. Right. And, and uh, so I'm very, very motivated. Spin Magazine years ago, years ago, Spin was around, asked me to write a, uh, a piece about uh, rock the vote, and so I mean, I've I've been very vocal about oh, wow. about things like rocking the vote, and then before it became fashionable, I was very vocal about wearing earplugs in a concert situation. Yeah, and um, when, when I started doing it, you know, when I started doing it, I made a dramatic gesture out of it, like I'd, I'd walk on stage without them, I'd stand there, you know, on the edge of the stage with a keyboard, I'd very dramatically remove them one by one and put them on, <laughs> <laughs> wait for that. People were people were watching yeah. to prepare them. Uh, guess what? We're the decimal level of a jet aircraft taking off. Yes, so yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which we were. I, I know. I'm, which we were. We were the loudest band in the world at one time. And so, yes. So, I mean, so this is, and, and I don't have tinnitus, and I think it's because of the fact that I was always the, you know, I've always been a geek and a dork, and so I've always <laughs> been like wear the earplugs. Oh and man, I wish I had when I was starting to see concerts. Well, you know, Michael has has never worn them, and it just makes me furious. But there's nothing; it's out of my hands now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not in. I'm not in charge. You know? but, I mean, every everybody else, everybody else does. Yeah, and 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 so all the, people don't understand all these ferocious metal bands. They're all wearing earplugs. Yeah, yeah, not, you just, just can't see them. This is their this is their income. This is their livelihood. They're exactly. not going to go deaf for you people. They're going to you to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But they're, they're there night after night. They're, they're going to try to protect themselves as much as possible. Yeah, because nobody wants that horrible ringing in your ears. No. So anyway, I think uh, I think you know those are the two two like super dorky things like don't drink, don't smoke, don't do drugs, wear earplugs, and vote. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> how boring! How 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 unrock. Yeah. <laughs> but well, responsible rock now. Now it's responsible rock. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, things have changed. Yeah, they really have, and. I wanted to, to first of all thank you for coming on the show. It, it's I'm just really excited to have you on. This is this is just great. I'm a and I'm gonna be totally uh, upfront. I'm actually kind of new to Swans and your music. I remember I was in college in the early '90s, and I remember when uh, White Light from the Mouth of Infinity came out, and I heard it once. A friend of mine had it, and it kind of scared and unsettled me and so i didn't go back Mm -hmm. to it until recently uh literally maybe Mm -hmm. a year ago i started uh actually when uh, i started doing this podcast uh one of the guys that helped me get some of the great guests i've had said hey uh michael draw is going to be doing you know limited press if you're interested you know i can schedule him for your podcast and i was like 
oh, that'd be great. And that's when I had mm-hmm. to go back and start, you know, acquainting myself with swans and, and yeah, all. Yeah, sure. And so I don't know everything. I'm not a swans expert by any means, um, and I'm not. Right. A, I'm not well, a jarbo expert. That's probably good. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably actually great. But I'm actually, I'm actually fascinated by him, by you, by the band, the sound, the music, uh-huh. and so it's. Uh, I'm, I'm learning as I go. So if uh, you and listeners, if I'm asking some questions that everybody already knows the answers to, I'm gonna say right up front that i'm just i'm still a swans novice so and uh yeah i want to know a little bit more about how you got to where you are right now and you were born in mississippi but grew up in new orleans so you know i know new orleans music is everywhere and so was was music like a, a big part of your childhood growing up oh yes very much so um i mean it can't be uh overstated how musical my father was. He uh, had a beautiful singing voice. He played guitar. He played uh, the Hammond organ. He, oh, cool. he, um, he, he, he had a massive music collection of records. And, and um, I, I grew up learning the very old, old-fashioned songs, oh, like the songs from, from uh, I don't know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And, and, and so uh, he, uh, when he discovered that I had a, a musical ability, uh, I could sing the notes that he pressed down and I could carry a tune you know when I was just a little baby little kid he uh he then he then uh encouraged uh, to bring that out of me so then that that was what opened the door to a lifetime of uh, music lessons and 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 every every possible choir and school and and church and and outside choirs and every possible training uh, training on the on the organ training on the piano training a vocal coach for years and years and years and and so um, what was interesting about this was it kind of kept me isolated uh, musically and then when I um, started uh, expanding my hearing, you know, to hear things that I had been conditioned to not hear as music. So, oh, really? so I began hearing, uh, you know, experimental and, and, uh, you know, of things that were using distorted guitar and that kind of thing. And, and then hearing singing that my coach would say was improper singing technique. And that would be contemporary singing using breath and using, uh, you know, more what you call common way of approaching singing. Okay. And so um, this was a, a big turning point. And uh, when I first was listening to this uh, radio show, from Georgia Tech that was doing experimental music on Sunday evenings. And so that's when I first heard a lot of this stuff, like SDK, Unstruts and Denoy Balton, Cabaret Cabaret Voltaire, Throbbing Gristle, Can. Um, I mean, the list is endless. And and so this is what opened the door to um, when I first heard uh, Power for Power, which is a song on the Filth album. Yes. Swan's Filth album. And what I liked about that particular track was the um, mantra-like quality of it, that it repeated over and over, and it sounded quite tribal, and and it really drew me in as as a composition. I knew nothing about the people behind it, so I looked for the record, and I found it from the radio station, who it was, and I looked for it. Of course, it was nowhere to be found. Right. no distribution. Yeah. And so I finally um, thought about it, and I just had the... 
the courage and tenacity and just precious uh, interest to, to, to go to the radio station. And I borrowed their actual copy. Oh, wow. And, um, and it was the radio station copy. And I, and I, um, you know, I never returned it. I mean, I, <laughs> I stole it. <laughs> terrible. It's terrible. Oh, you should send them a new I, copy. I feel bad. I feel bad. But, but I did return the favor because shortly thereafter, when I started doing performance work using contact mics and, and doing things on little obscure DIY art galleries, I then uh, performed on the radio station oh, and live, and and then I I did work with one of the DJs there who knew how to operate some of the, the gear, and so it was my first introduction to recording in a uh, experimental way. Oh, cool! So you and did return so, the favor. Well, I returned the favor by by inputting music. I guest hosted a, a, as a DJ, and uh-huh. I I performed live down there. And so, I mean, I kind of got involved with the station. So I think that um, you know, I helped and I returned the favor in that way. I guess. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I mean, um, but see, this was very important because when I heard that. There was an address on the back of the record because there was no lyric sheet and it said write for lyric sheet. So I I wrote like a postcard or something to the address of the the little independent record label Mm -hmm. on the back of the, uh, to New York on the back of the, of the, and then I got a, uh, I got a, a, I don't know, months later, I don't remember now, I got a, a, a response back from Michael. Oh, cool. Um, and, it, and it was a very interesting kind of letter, and the lyrics were there. And it was, I think I still got it. I still got it. Oh, typed wow. up lyric sheet that he mailed and addressed to me. And um, and he goes, and he wrote on there in, in ink something like, a, you know, here they are, such as they are. Here's yes. the <laughs> And it was very self-effacing, you know, and yeah. kind of humble. And that, that made me even more interested because it sounded so sincere oh. and not pompous, you know. And, yeah. and so... Um, so, so that kind of opened the door, and I wrote back. So this was all through the mail. Yeah, so this is exchange. So this is taking and, uh, I told months. Him about my, yeah, I told him about my work, you know, that I was starting to do, and finally I sent him a cassette of some different stuff I was doing, and he was uh, impressed with the variety of the stuff I was doing. Uh, vocally, and then I was using a, a 16 second digital delay sampler, electro harmonics oh, cool. uh, digital delay unit, and I had the very first one that would enable you to layer tracks just in this unit. And then the track that you recorded would come back and you could add to it, and then it would come back and add to it, and then eventually the original ones would kind of fade in a very ethereal way, and you could press a button and then have it all come back as this massively layered coral kind of a thing, oh, right? wow. So I sent him a tape of me doing that stuff, and he was apparently blown away by that, and then I was going up there anyway to attend some classical music performances at oh. Carnegie Hall oh, wow. and Lincoln Center. And I was going to, you know, I was going to the Met and I was going to go to all these things up there. So I, um, so while I was up there staying, um, in Midtown near Lincoln Center, I, um, uh, was also working with a zine because, you know, these were the days of zines. And I was working with an art zine that we would take and photocopy. Okay. And so, uh, they wanted me to interview, try to do an interview with, with Swans. Oh, wow. And so I, uh, was invited to come down to, the bunker, the studio, 
And of course, that's where I wound up living for all those years. Oh, man. So I went down there and it was just raw space. Yeah, yeah. Raw concrete space. And there was a heavy steel door on the street. Go in there. And they had, uh, in a very funky way, put up carpeting and that kind of thing to try to soundproof it, which was a joke. It wasn't. <laughs> and and um, so, that, so that was, I was not allowed into the actual room, which is probably great because I would have been deaf. Yes. So I was able to sit outside the door of the, uh, of, of the actual room where they were. And my God. It was so loud, and all the walls are rumbling, and oh. it was just unbelievable. So I was able to hear them rehearsing, and it was just, just brutal. So, wow. uh, I, so then when they came out, then um, I met them all, and then I, I went, we went to Life Cafe, which I know is no longer there, but Life Cafe was quite famous for a while. I think it was in Time Magazine. Anyway, so, mm. so we went to Life and then I um, uh, started interviewing him. And Michael, and so so that was how we became friends, and that was how this kind of rapport started. And I expressed my interest in yeah you know, being part of that scene, yeah, yeah, being part of that world, and that I'd be willing to come up there. And Jeez. so then, um, then, and, and of course, another added factor to this is that I was studying a type of martial arts, a kickboxing, kick kickboxing. Oh, really? And I'm um, like a yeah, I was like a bondo boxer. So I had these very ferocious kick moves and I had calluses on the sides of my hands from chopping, you know, hitting, uh, hitting cement blocks. Oh my God. And so, and I had a buzz cut and I only wore athletic gear like bike shorts and, and, uh, wrestling boots. Oh wow. So anyway, so, so this is the person that he met. And so I think that I looked tough enough to be able to, to come up there and to, <laughs> yeah. to help, you know, and I did. I came up there, and I, on the very first tour uh, that they did in 1984, I wasn't in the band. I was like a, you know, like a, a, a schlepper, a person hauling the drums and helping move the amps, and okay. just really almost like a glorified roadie, you know. Oh. Like a, and it was a brutal tour, brutal tour, because they all chain smoked and in the van, <laughs> and they, uh, of course, I, of course, I was teetotal. Right. Completely straight edge. Yeah. So they were also hardcore drinkers, like massively. And I hadn't, I, that was kind of a shock because I didn't drink at all. So, yeah, so I would be the stone cold sober person with oh, all the chain smoking drunks. <laughs> and they would be so drunk they couldn't, you know, they couldn't even climb up the stairs to go to the hotel. I mean, they, or they, they were just, wow. so anyway, and, and, and the smoking was unbelievable. I was getting full of toxic oh. poisons because I couldn't breathe and it was horrible. But, but, but the good thing about that was is, is I went into it completely aware of what, what I was, you know, going to be dealing with. Yeah, yeah. And I was still fascinated by the live sound. I was still fascinated by the music and um, kind of unstoppable. And, and so I was willing to have the naive notion that I would change things to fit me right. rather than I would, I would not become, become like that. Okay. Yeah. And that was that was really the source of tension the entire time is because I never never went to the bars. I was never part of the bar scene. I the rehearsal would end, I would open up the little vent that we had to let out the cigarette smoke <laughs> and I would get to work. I would just get to work playing by myself and, wow. and, and working on my own compositions. 
and they would go out and, and, and there was a whole scene up there with all these musicians yeah. and they would go to after hours bars and they would, I mean, but you know, these are bars, they'd come in at, you know, the sun be coming up. Right. Yeah. And I, and, of, and so this, see, I never was part of that. So see, then again, the dork, you know, the nerd, like yes. I wasn't cruel. <laughs> <laughs> I was never cruel because I never partied. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not judging it. I'm simply saying I, it's not something I ever felt comfortable with. Right. It's too different worlds so, yeah so, so in other words we could meet on a on, on an artistic level as time went by but you got but then people it had nothing to do with introducing even though I did introduce Melody it had nothing to do with that ultimately it had to do with I was able to adapt and so the very first thing I did uh, recording wise was a blood curdling scream <laughs> You know, opened a track, and then I went on to doing choral vocals on Holy Money, and then I yes. went on to introducing melody and playing keyboards and adding a tremendous amount of background vocals, and then finally the lead vocals and uh, Children of God. And before Children of God, you know, we had done the Skin albums, and that was those were done before Children of God. So you, okay. Blood Women Roses, Blood Women Roses is basically my first solo album but we decided to call it a project right yes um, skin, and it became world of skin instead of skin because there was a band in New Jersey or something that oh. <laughs> skin. and so I was going to ask about how that came up we would have to buy the name and oh. they wanted a huge amount of money and so so we decided just to change the name to world of skin but see that was that was a very uh, melodic yeah. album the blood on roses and so you can see how that then went over to children of god yeah so yeah, that's sure. how it opened up this whole portal of i guess what you call uh, more melodic complex intricate kind of harmonies and stuff that that entered into the sound of swan so it's yeah. a pretty radical change yeah it really was the first album yeah <laughs> and before you know going back to hearing swans for the first time had you thought about pursuing singing and music as a career? Yes, but uh, as I got older, um, I I wanted to pursue what was not recognized as real music. I wanted right. to pursue uh, more rock and, and pop kind of stuff. Right. And so that was a source of tension between me and my father. And, and so, I mean, a big source of tension. Right. And so that was kind of the, the breaking point was I began to form my own identity and that identity was, quite frankly, was never accepted. Yeah. It was always, I believe, a huge disappointment. And I oh. think until he died, I think I was still um, a disappointment because I, I he didn't understand my, um, you know, my interest in things that were kind of groundbreaking and, move, and moving forward rather than mm -hmm. um, perfecting the old ways. Yeah. I wanted to move forward with something that 
wasn't even recognized as music, to be honest. It was just considered noise. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now, what, what did your mother think of, of all of this at the time? And, and, and how did she look at, at your career and swans in particular? Well, she was, um, she was the interesting thing about their dynamic. I've reflected upon it, you know, many times in the, as years have gone by. She was supportive and, um, I think that he was the issue, and I think she was very supportive. Uh, she would secretly send me money when I was in New York to try to help me. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> she, um, she, when we were uh, uh, the first tour, when the band was stranded in London, I, you know, I had a return ticket from Belgium. Okay. Uh, I had a round trip. I had a round trip ticket on that tour, and of course, I had no way to get back there because I was traveling with them. So I would, so that meant I missed my return ticket. I was stranded in England and there was a lot of problems there with um, sneaking people into rooms because, you know, you can only have, you can only pay for the person, not the room. So there was a lot of, they were sneaking in and out of the room and all that. And I'm pretty sure I was paying for, for my own room and um, credit card. And so I think that, um, you know, there was a lot of difficulties there financially. So I remember walking to, this is the days of pay phones, I remember walking to the phone and attempting to call, and I had to call home, and I had to call her and just say, can you please wire me some money? Oh, wow. Because <laughs> I, I maxed out my card. I got maxed oh. out my card on that tour. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, so she was there to help me all the time. You know what I mean? She helped yeah. me. and. Yeah, so I think she was supportive. But here's the big difference. The big difference was she was basically tone deaf. Oh, she wow. could not sing. And so I think I was the only one of the three children that could sing. And, and I think this was why my father was so excited when he discovered this. Because I was the baby, you know, the youngest. And I oh, think that he, yeah. um, I think he, you know, he, he was thrilled that he finally had a kid that had music. Whereas <laughs> yeah. But my two brothers and my mom, really, they had no, t- and not only did they, they just were unable to sing, you know, yeah. they were unable to carry a tune. So, see, that's the difference. Like, she was supportive just because of she loved her love for me. Yeah. And I think he, I think he was very strict, you know, kind yeah. of uh, expectations of me. And it, and that extended itself not only to music, it extended that to every realm of my life. I mean, and it was just um. impossible. It's like, it's like, it's like you're, it's one of those situations where you're never good enough. You're never good enough. Yeah. So, oh, so you can never please. So it was like that. Where she would be more compassionate so it's okay. like there was a real real gap between the two of them there really was well in, in along those lines swan's fans are also pretty intense did they accept you right away when you started uh you know, being a front person in the band no the, the very first tour see i didn't sing the first tour right, i yeah. played uh, the insonic mirage and they were like slabs of loud sound this thing was incredibly loud and brutal and it would have a lot of percussion sounds in it and it was just really kind of the early days of sampling keyboards you know and yeah. they, I think I think I had the very first one I had the very first in Sonic Mirage oh, wow. and this is what Michael had wanted me to contribute to the sound because they always use they always use noises and stuff as part of the sound but those yeah. were recorded onto a cassette 
and they were played. The, the bass player had a foot pedal connected to the cassette deck, and he would roll the sound up and down in volume throughout oh, wow. the entire set. So that particular bass player quit. And so then Michael said he wanted something to replace that that element. And so that was became the Insonic Mirage. Okay. And that thing was a it was a beast because there was no monitor. You were dealing with parameters. Oh, so wow. it wasn't like today when you cook it up to your computer monitor and you can see a screen. Yeah. This was purely based on numbers. Oh and so gosh. it had this big, it had a manual the size of a, you know, the old giant phone book. Yeah. <laughs> and all it was was parameters, like, oh, like wow. mathematical equations oh, to wow. correct your sound. Oh so that was a nightmare going through that that manual, and uh, and then the thing was it was a I was like a beta tester for it on the road because it was a sensitive piece of electronic equipment, yeah. and I I determined at the end of, of a long tour that we did that it was not a roadworthy instrument. <laughs> it was it, not only was it susceptible to temperature. Oh. cold and heat, but it was also susceptible to um, voltage. So oh, you're talking wow. about a band that drew like every bit of juice in their venue. Yeah, I bet. Like sucked it out of the PA. <laughs> the very early shows, the very early shows, we blew the electric. Oh. We blew the fuses wow. over and over during the set. Oh, my gosh. And you can listen to those early recordings, and, like, the song will suddenly stop because we've blown the electric again. Wow. So what happened with the keyboard, with the Mirages, then you'd have to reboot the system with the operating system disk. Oh, my gosh. So you'd have to, you'd have to put that in there. And that would take a while to oh. reboot the entire system. And then you'd have to put in your particular diskettes that had the sounds on them. Oh, my So, see, once you were at a commission electrically, you missed an entire song waiting to get back in the game. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Jeez. I know. And this happened for years, and, and, and I could not wait to get rid of that thing. And then finally, it, it um, and, and then, oh, yeah, and then we had to send it off to Malvern, Pennsylvania, where the where the factory was, to get it repaired. Oh, we wow. We even drove there a couple of times. Oh, my God. And it had to get repaired, and when they returned it, this is hilarious, this is a New York story, <laughs> when they returned it, we had to go pick it up at some shipping area, Right. Right. And, of course, we were having a, one of our famous blizzards, and they had dropped it into a snowbank. Oh, my God. <laughs> like the worst thing you could possibly do to a piece of electronic yeah. equipment. Oh, my God. So this is the hell I went through. The, the, this thing took years off my life, I'm sure. I oh. was constantly stressed out about this keyboard. Oh, my God. And then... When we, we took this thing, this is insane. This is just like an insane. We took this thing on the Eastern European tour. Oh, wow. We were like, I think pretty sure the first Western band to do this tour. We went into communist, socialist countries. Yeah. We went into wow. what was called Yugoslavia. We yeah. went into what was called Czechoslovakia. We went into Prague. We rolled into Prague at three in the morning. There were a hammer and sickle flags, bright red, blowing off of the buildings. Wow. And, and we were illegal. We had to be smuggled by dissidents oh. and meet to do these shows. Wow. And these people that, that smuggled us around 
um, you know, they were professors, doctors, they were, you know, they oh, were yeah. super intellectuals and they'd all been reduced to, um, well, not, you know, they'd all been chained to being street cleaners. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yep. They'd lost their positions. And so they put us up in their homes and they snuck us in and we did shows that were uh, only announced through the grapevine and underground. Oh and they gosh. would be shows like underneath the street and, and former like cellars. Wow. And um, it, it was really funky, you know, and, and uh, it, was, it was incredibly informative and, and uh, enlightening to see that. So the point was, is I had this machine with me. <laughs> and, I mean, you can imagine the audience like, oh, you know, their, their heads completely sideways like yeah. what is that yeah exactly and nobody had seen anything like it and so people would come up want to touch it and look at it oh, and I, I often used to say to Michael it's like that movie when the coke bottle or something drops into Africa the gods must it's be like, crazy it's like it's, yeah it's, it's it's like it's like I, I think I changed history somehow <laughs> <laughs> that was you a know? great movie I love that movie We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. But here's, here's the crazy thing about this instrument. Because of its value, I'm, I remember paying 1200 for it. Okay, well, that's a lot of money in those days. And the yeah. case, the, ca- the calzone, calzone case, that thing was also worth hundreds of dollars. So the point was, it was a little expensive in those days. So... We would stay in these hotels, you know, that were not exactly, you know, they're in Europe. They have no elevators. They have, so you'd have to, I I remember in Amsterdam in particular where the the stairs go straight up, right? Literally straight up, like you're going into the attic, straight up. And I would have to take this thing out of the van and I'd have to get it into the lobby and then I'd have to shove it, pull it, push it all the way up these stairs to my room. So at any moment, you know, this thing could fall and take your head off. Yeah. (laughs) It could slide back. Oh my God. So this brutal carrying this thing around, like, you know, it was unbelievable. And of course, the the whole idea was you have to carry your own stuff. I mean, you're you're on your own with your gear. Yeah. So no one helped me. Oh, and it was geez. pretty hardcore because it was very, very heavy and very, very big. It sounds like it could be a metal. Yeah, well, well, this thing, I, you know, anyway, so I finally got rid of it when, 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 you know, we went on to me renting a Yamaha and then hooking it up to an Akai sampler in, in, in a rack mount oh, with wow. effects units and the rack mount. So that was fine because then if the electric went off, the only thing you had to worry about was rebooting your, your sampler machine and not the entire system itself. <laughs> yeah. So that's changed my life. And then not having to worry about the keyboard, just getting it when you got in Europe, you know. Oh, cool. And okay. So that changed my life for the better. But this, this, this introduction, you know, with this thing. So, so to answer your question, you get long when you answer. Um, you know, the very first shows, um, oh no, um, trial by fire. I mean, yeah. spit at, objects oh. thrown at me, beer, beer bottles barely missing my head, um, screaming and yelling. Entire audience, early shows, skinheads, entire audience. Wow. So they did not like me at all. Oh my gosh. Jeez. And I remember, uh, I remember in uh, a show, we, one of the earliest shows we did in Yugoslavia, which is now uh, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Okay. 
the entire it was outdoor show the entire uh stage area mm-hmm. was full of slivers of broken glass Boom. so they had to kind of like try to sweep some of that out of the way you know to even go onto the stage oh, and, wow. and when I remember then I had, I had started singing a bit during the show then and I remember some guys laughing and they started pelting me with fruit oh. like, and so it was like mushy fruit oh. and they hit me they hit me all over the front of my body with this fruit while I was singing so in other words you know what I developed um, during all this time was just to not even blink my eyes and to just keep on going no matter what, which is what I did. Wow. I never flinched. I never stopped. I just kept on going no matter what happened around me. And that's the way it was. It was brutal. The the most famous of all these, well, I mean, I was hit many times. I was slapped. I was hit. I was knocked down. Oh, God. And and the most... um, one of the most legendary in my, my own personal history of these would be the Boston Rat, which is no longer there, the Rothskeller. Oh. And this venue was, um, you know, a hardcore punk venue. And um, so that one, this is a shows you what, what women would go through. And I guess I was unusual because it was in a woman, that, a woman in the band that was, I guess the sound would be considered quite, testosterone and macho. I mean, there weren't really any women interested in in swans in those days. So, so, uh, I, I, uh, I, I was upstairs. They had an area upstairs for us to eat. So we had finished eating and then they closed off the, um, back entrance to the stage for some reason. Mm. So you had to go through the crowd, getting in the door to go through the audience and oh, then push yourself geez. up on stage. Oh, geez. So, that, so, so see, that was a normal occurrence. So, so that wasn't a problem at all okay. to me. But, th- but I realized the door was locked. I had to go through the audience. So I go down the stairs. And it's, it's pandemonium. I mean, it's packed. So I go down the stairs. And, of course, there are these big, scary-looking men, bouncers, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, I'm going through, I'm just saying, and I'm just kind of waving my hand, like, okay, I got my point to the stage. They don't believe me. Uh-huh. And one of them, I go past him, one of them, he grabs me by the shoulder, and he throws me up against the wall. And then I said, no, I got to get the stage, the stage. And, and you have to shout, everybody's screaming, it's very loud. Yeah. He doesn't believe me. And then Michael, I look over and I see Michael's on stage pacing back and forth like he's angry as hell. Yeah. Because I'm not there. Because, you know, I'd had to go to the bathroom after I ate food. So I'm trying to get up there. And I would have made it no problem, but I was stopped. Oh. So there's no one to ask. We didn't have any laminates. I mean, this is like punk rock day. So, it's like, right. it's like, yeah. so, so I'm like, you know, and I was there for the sound check, of course, but I yeah. guess this guy wasn't there. Oh, wow. So anyway, to get to the point, it wound up with me like, you know, just trying to do my job and just, I turned around, I was just like, Oh, I, I think I actually did say, fuck you. Fuck you. I'll show you. i the band. <laughs> Let me prove it to you. Yeah. I'll prove it to you. So I just proceed to push my way through, you know, and get down there. And here I I feel this hand. He grabs me. And then he takes his boot and he kicks me. And he kicks me over and over and over again. Oh, my God. So at that point, I'm hurt. 
so, so then another man who's also a bouncer there, he was quite famous. He had a voice box. Oh, wow. And he comes up, he comes up and, and his voice box, he says, you know, stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, you know, she's hard. No, leave her alone. Oh. And so, so, so then the guy stopped. So then I had to get up and climb on all fours against the wall with people coming down steps to go back to the toilet because I had literally lost control of myself in um, my underwear. I mean, I'm yeah. telling you, I know, I know what that means now because it's happened to me once in my life. So anyway, because <laughs> you're terrified, you know, you're being. Yeah. Oh, my God. So then I had to go back down to get onto stage, hoping this guy remembers I'm in the group. So I see the promoter, and I say to the promoter, hey, look, I'm just trying to get to the show. And let me tell you something. The way I've been treated here, like, uh, yeah, this venue is we're we're never going to play here again. I'm telling you that right now. Yeah. And her exact words, the promoter's exact words were, no one cares what you think. Oh, wow. Right? So then, of course, today it'd be Lawsuit City. Yeah, no So anyway, so, <laughs> so, so, so I walked back down the stairs. This time, they looked at me, and as I went by the particular bouncer, that had, he, yelled, he yelled out to me, Troublemaker! Oh, jeez. Oh, my <laughs> God. Can you believe it? Meanwhile, you. meanwhile, we were on the, the local music zine for Dawson. We were on the cover. So this guy didn't uh. even know, you know, or believe me when I told him I was still picture. So that shows you what I was up against wow. as a female. That's... You just, there's, uh. there's no way that you could be in the band. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And, I know. It's endless. It's endless. That kind of stuff was endless. Uh. It's endless. So it, it did so, take a little while for you to to get accepted by the fans and and, and well, everybody remember, else in the industry. I, I remember I remember very distinctly uh, Michael his exact words were you know I think he even said it in interviews in those days we wanted to I had had to get rid of that audience yeah. change audience didn't want that audience anymore because it was so mean and so brutal and so it was only men it was only well, boys it was only guys yeah. and and uh, they were uh, just wanted to be just they just wanted to be brutalized they just wanted loud brutality and there's yep. only so long you can keep doing that you know and, and have any interest in what you're doing as an artist you know exactly yeah so so, I mean, the thing about it is, is I always saw it as an art project. I always saw it as a project. I always, I never saw it as a rock band. I always saw it as an art project. You're talking about a person who went to art school. You know, he and yeah. Tim Gordon went to art school together in Los Angeles. They're artists who decided to try to, to use music, uh, you know, expressing their artistry. That's my opinion of it. Mm-hmm. And that is, I'm standing with that. I'm standing with that because yeah. there wasn't any macho element behind what he was doing and the early lyrics were not about literal you know they were about they were they were metaphors yeah like raping a slave that was not about raping that was right. about uh, that was about the worker boss relationship exactly. and that was about uh, uh, working people 
uh, you know, too hard without any any respect or money. And this was a theme that went through all of that early, all of that uh, the abuse of power. I mean, that this is something that was a theme even today, I believe. So, so yeah. in other words, this was this was what I saw, and this is what I, why I was attracted to it. Right. It had and and the and the and the, the sound quality of it I was attracted to because to me it sounded um, you know forward. It sounded groundbreaking. Yeah. There's no one doing anything quite like it. Exactly. And so I, I always, I had the ears to, to accept that and I, from the very beginning. So I think, you know, it was natural for me that to, to be part of it, not to mention the fact that I was extremely buff in those days. And so I was right. completely fearless yeah. about the physicality of it. And um, to my credit, I was never mugged. I was never bothered in any way in the most dangerous neighborhood in, in New York. And wow. so, so when, I, when we went up, when I moved in there, I mean, my God, it was just, you know, just take your life in your hands going out the door. Yeah, I've, I've seen nothing some, but, some photos of me. nothing but drug dealers, yeah. drug dealers. And I wrote some very intimate autobiographical lyrics for Justin Broderick for his Yezu project. Uh, called Storm Coming On, and that was, and the lyrics described literally what it was like on a day by day basis. Open the door, puddle of urine, hypodermic needles everywhere. You know that this yeah. was the this was the reality of of the you know the Lower East the East Village, you know Avenue B and Sixth Street, the East Village uh, in the eighties. You know this was um, a no man's land. because of the fact that you were seen as encroaching uh, gentrificationers who would kick them out eventually with the real estate going up. And so there was a lot of hostility from the residents that were, were living up there then. And so there was a constant harassment. And, and, um, and I had never seen, growing up in the South, I had never seen racism until I moved to New York. And that is when I saw it for the very first time, and I saw how nasty it was. Yeah. You know, I'm, that does not surprise me. I, I lived in, uh, I, I grew up between Virginia and New Jersey, and then uh, in my, I don't know, mid-20s or so, I ended up moving down to Alabama, and then back up to Virginia. So, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Back in, in that time, yeah, my parents, we would go into New York City occasionally, and, and yeah, I, I remember how dangerous something my parents would always... We'd always, they always have to, you know, even almost as like teenagers, we'd have to like, like grab onto each other and we'd make sure you're, we're all yeah. going in the same direction. You know, we're all close to closing, you know, like circle the wagons as we walk down the street. And, and I remember that. Yeah. And, and the beautiful thing about it is that it, my experience in that music and that situation early on live, as well as uh, living there, is that the, the that 
uh, stays with you the rest of your life. Yeah. And what good, what is good about it is that it's, it's, it gives you, um, a skill set, a technique that toughens you, but it also makes you kind of smart and savvy in terms of not getting, um, taken advantage of or duped and you have eyes around the back of your head you have a vision that circles around and so so I learned that very very quickly walking the sidewalk and to to walk into the middle of the street and then I learned Michael taught me this to have a glass bottle like a water bottle or whatever empty and you would just swing it as you walked down the middle of the street oh wow especially in, in the especially at night because oh, that no. gave the message that you you you, you know like maybe you've been in the pen you know like yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can take that bottle you can take that bottle and you can use that as a weapon wow so i think that saved me another thing that saved me was this is probably hard to believe, but it's absolute truth. Even in August, Michael would wear ankle-length, thrift shop, black wool coats. And he taught me to do this. The reason why you would wear these long, baggy coats is to look, you could possibly be concealing something in that coat. Oh, okay. So people, if you, if you were, if you always wore baggy clothes, then the criminals, the, the people that would mug other people, would size them up and go, okay, so they could possibly carry in all kinds of stuff and yeah. that clothes. So I would, uh, I started dressing that way as well, very, very baggy. And, um, you know, you would all only wear boots. You certainly would never wear any high heels or any kind. Right. Now, Lydia Lunchwort was the only woman I knew who could get away with those stilettos. <laughs> she was ferocious. <laughs> you she would wear weapons in themselves. Yeah, she she made a big impression on me because, of course, she and Michael were friend, good friends then. Yeah. And she um, she would wear these stilettos and and um, with what looked just like pantyhose, like black pantyhose. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Wow. And like skin tight. Oh my and, gosh. And, and, and so, the, so the impression, the image that she gave to me, and I imagine to, to anyone looking at her on the street, was that, yeah, she was ferocious. Yeah. Oh, you know, wow. She, she would use those things as a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched her. I respected her and I watched her. And I would see that she too would, she, I learned from her. A skill set that I still have. If I, if I go up to that place, it's um, you see something, and you have this vision. You see something potentially unsavory mm-hmm. on the sidewalk up above. So without even blinking or making it obvious at all, you just, in the same pace, cross the street and go over to the other side. Oh, okay. Because you see, you see, you see a possible confrontation. Yeah. So I saw her do that, and I was okay. So then I learned it. So I was just walking at the same pace, really fast. You see some men, you don't know who they are, whatever. You just not even blink. You just cross the street on the other side, keep going. You know? yeah. <laughs> and that way, you avoid all confrontation. That's smart. The, the other thing that happened with the neighborhood, I talk about this with my friends that had left there that were living there at the same time as me. The neighbors had changed throughout the years with the with the people that um, it was kind of like an infestation. The people that would people that would come in there and then leave, come in there and leave, and a lot oh, of them which were what you call um, you know the bridge and tunnel. The people that would come in there on the weekends 
from places like Jersey, yeah. and then they would leave. The bridge and tunnel, Brooklyn. And you got to remember, Brooklyn in those days, Brooklyn was not like it is now. No, no. Brooklyn was a place cab drivers wouldn't even take you sometimes. Yeah. They were like, nah, it's too far. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah, and, and by the way, when, when I first uh, went up there, Forget about it. There's no taxi going to take you to Avenue A. Too dangerous. So the 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 crazy thing was back on the on the the, the interesting stuff I went through uh, as a, a female in that neighborhood. Uh, the uh, at one point the skinheads, ferocious uh, racist skinheads, moved in. Yeah. And they were hanging out on the sidewalk, hanging out, and they would walk in a line like an army okay. and they would walk they would take up the entire width of the sidewalk oh, and if you didn't get out of their way they would mow you down oh jeez they would just simply walk all over you and mow you down they didn't care <sighs> so I was walking I was on 6th street coming from I was coming from 1st avenue I was walking home so I turned the corner I was on 6th street heading down to 6th and B okay. and there was this building there that's now an art uh, institution. It's like a big building that was always mysterious because it was always closed. It's got this dramatic front. It looks very uh, uh, utilitarian. It looks like something out of 1984 or something. It's got oh, this wow. bizarre front. Yeah, I think it used to be a Con Ed building or something. Anyway, okay. so electric company. Yeah, but, yeah. So I'm walking, I'm walking on the other side of the sidewalk from this thing. I'm going back. I'm not even looking over there. And I voices and I don't look because you never look no. at someone right. yelling at you and what I heard was obscene language hmm. it was like we're, com- we're coming after you <laughs> we're coming after you and uh, you know and I realized it was because I had uh, what I was a very progressive in those days hairstyle I had dreads and extensions right yeah so I had that look and I got it for the very first time at a place in London and then at a place in, in uh, uh, Soho. And, you know, people like Boyd George and, you know, everybody was getting this in the avant-garde kind of fashion hairstyle. So see, yeah. now everybody's got this look. But I was one of the first. Right, yeah. So I had, I had um, you know, I had this thick head of hair, multicolored dreadlocks and extensions. And they were very dramatic. They were different colors. Oh, but wow. see, to their eyes, any kind of a hairdo like that was... You know, something they did not associate with, with me. Right. So, so they were racist. And so I continued to be, um, you know, on the edge the whole time those people lived in the neighborhood because I thought they would, they really, they probably really would have. Yeah. If they'd been able to get me, they probably would have killed me. Oh my gosh. Jeez. Yeah. Horrible. Horrible. That's... Oh gosh. That's, I, I hate hearing stuff like that. Well, this hairdo, which looked so good and was considered so iconic, uh, you know, I had many photos uh, that are kind of well-known now, you know, of me in those days. Yeah. They, um, this hairdo got me in trouble so many times in, in airports. Really? Because they thought I was, yeah, they thought I was smuggling stuff inside my hair. 
Oh my God! And so wow. it happened in uh, Germany, and then when it happened at JFK, Al, the bass player, was waiting for me to pick me up, uh, coming in from Europe, and I uh, was taken aside, and the dogs were there, and the women came, and they took me into the room and searched me everywhere wow. to get my drift. Yeah. And I, I did not like that at all. I was beyond, um, I guess, felt kind of assaulted. Yeah. And so. They and they said it was because of my hair. Well, so at that point, when you're traveling all over the place, you know, internationally, you just get fed up. So that very day, I when I went home, I just took scissors and I whacked it off. I was like, "Sue this, wow. you know, this. Oh. From now on, I'm going to look the most conservative I could possibly be. Wow. Leave me alone." Oh my gosh! So was that close to the end of your time in Swans? No, this is mid '80s. Okay. Okay. So, but you did end up leaving Swans in 97. And the final tour was 97. And then um, 98 is when the last uh, release came out when uh, Michael and I were still uh, together. Okay. And so uh, that, that mid 98 is when um, I started working on um, Anadoniac. Okay. And uh, he, at that time, was then going to start this Angels of Light project. And, and um, so at that point, um, things kind of came to a head because, of, uh, in my opinion anyway, uh, because of the fact that I couldn't tolerate the alcohol consumption anymore. And, and we had a lot of problems with that. And, of course, yeah. to his credit now, I think he's, he's been sober for quite a few years. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. And I am um, thrilled that he's taken that step. But when we were together, this was a problem he, it was a big problem. Yeah. And uh, we had a member of the band on the last tour who ha- was a, in, a recovered uh, alcoholic. Okay. And he had, he had been to uh, a rehab and, and uh, AA and all that. And he encouraged me to start going to Al-Anon, which is Friends and Families of Alcoholics. And so I started yeah. going two nights a week when Michael and I were still living together and, and okay. I, uh, I, I spent a lot of my time there and I had all kinds of advice. And so finally it became to, it came the concept of the concept of enabling kind of came on my doorstep and, and I didn't really think about it. And then I, I thought about how perhaps that that's what was going on, you know, that yeah. I, I was kind of, kind of being, in, in certain situations, good cop to, to, to his bad cop. And so I think okay. that I, re, I, I, I'm not happy with how it, how it played out. I think if I could have had, had the best of all worlds, it would have been that we would have gone together to figure out the issues and yeah. stop the problem. Because, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, people say a tiger doesn't change his stripes, but, but I think that that added to a lot of stress and that added to a lot of the problems on the last tour. And also just, just, you know, you're living with this daily, daily, daily. And, yeah. and it, as anyone who's been through it is pretty hardcore. So I think he himself has talked about this. So I think that this had a lot to do with why that happened in my opinion. I think that that could see from the outsider point of view or from my point of view, things were looking great. Okay. Things were looking in terms of the audience size, okay, in terms yeah. of the venues, in terms of the venues we played. Yeah. I saw finally after paying dues for so many years, thankless, never making any money, never having any kind of proper 
mature. Getting physically I assaulted. finally saw. Well, well, finally, you know, it got to the point of playing a prestigious, you know, venues like like the botanical gardens in Belgium and right. and and selling out theaters. And so, to me, I could see not only that, but the music to me was getting better and better and better. And um, so, if I were to say, what is your favorite tour of, of all time? When I was in it, it would definitely be the last the '97 tour because of the fact that I crawled. Uh, I, I consider Hypo Girl and I Crawled as, as um, the shining moments of my entire capability as a vocalist. Wow, yeah. And I Crawled was really a pinnacle for me because I showcased in that one song every single voicing I could do. There was no uh, harmonizer, no, no affectionate. Wow. I mean, it was all through, coming from the body. That's so, so intense. So I think too. that, well, it, well it, was, it was a theater piece from my head, you know, and, and the way I performed it was it was a theater piece. You can see the characters and what's happening there, yeah. and it's terrifying what happens. And so, so, so you know, gut-wrenching. And so I think, that, I think that this is what I wanted to do. And I think that if things had um, continued, you know, I would have liked to, the, the the ability to have more pieces along those lines, as well as to do more um, instrumental things like we did on that tour, which were quite beautiful. I mean, they were really kind of amazing and, and hypnotic. And I also think the dichotomy of the front person, of the male and female, was, was very effective. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I think that... Um, you know, many fans, you know, that, that talk to me anyway, of course they're going to say this to me, but they, this was their favorite era because of the fact that they really, they enjoy that kind of, kind of um, back and forth with the yeah. male, the female energy. And so I, I would have to say this, this was, uh, uh, you know, I just saw it as getting better. In, in terms of the band, and yeah. so so I think that to then nip it in the bud and to end it, I, I just I thought it was insane. Were you, were you prepared? I just thought it was insane, and and no one asked me what I thought about it. Yeah, uh, and so, so this is why on that last tour I didn't sign autographs. I didn't. I did one interview for an all-female run radio station in Oslo. Yeah, and I I didn't. I I, I felt so angry. You know, oh, I had yeah. so many conflicted emotions about it, and and I still have those conflicted emotions about it, and it's still hard to talk about because wow. it just it just is inexplicable stupidity, in my opinion. And he said he didn't want to do the loud kind of stuff anymore. Well, then he went back to it. 
I was the first person to return to that, and, and the reason why I did was neurosis asked me to perform with them. as ours was and they were ferocious I mean they were not they were deadly serious uh, uh, musicians and 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 I and I was so happy for my training that I had in Florence because the thing I've learned in recording with guitar oriented the guitar player is like the quarterback it's like the guitar player is also a star to the singer so you step Mm -hmm. out of the way of the guitars the singer always gives the guitar room to sing. Yeah, okay. And, my, and, and so, with Neurosis, I carefully constructed my vocals on our album around what the guitars were doing. So I gave passages for the guitars to step out and to express themselves. Without the training and, and songs and all the years of recording in studios and learning not to step on somebody else's part, then you learn the harmony involved in the, in the ensemble. Right, right. The thing I've learned the most is listening. It, you can't stress this enough to musicians. They have got to listen to what everybody is doing. Listen right. to what all the other people are doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. When Swans ended, did you uh, did you have an idea of the musical direction you wanted to take from that point on, or had did you have anything written already that that you were working on? Or? Well, you figure you figured like the whole time doing songs, I was doing solo albums. Okay. So I did Thirteen Masks. I did Sacrificial Cake. I did uh, Beautiful People Limited. I did. I did. I did work. You know, yeah. on my own stuff and with collaborators. So it was just a continuation of of me. You know, and and okay. there was no interruption there. And uh, the Anadoniac album, which was the album, the first album that I did, that was a bold pioneering move on my part again. I might add, because I completely self did it. I self-produced it. I self-released it. Yes. I self-manufactured it. So wow. people weren't doing that then. I had it made into a CD, had, had artwork made, and I sold it from the website. And it was even self-assembled by hand. Oh, wow. And, 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 and the, the actual artwork of the original edition was wearing a belt around it. Uh, that that looped over the actual you know uh, outside part of the of the of the art, yeah, and yeah. that oh, was wow. to reference the photographs. And the photographs were done were done by famed photographer Richard Kern. Oh wow! And Richard yeah. Kern is is a legend, and and yeah. you know he, he he New York Girls. He he filmed many uh, Lydia Lunch videos. The guy is is whole part of that whole. Um, that whole scene yeah, you know, yeah. up there, and and he, um, he he himself instead of calling himself an artist, he called himself a pornographer. He was very tongue in cheek about yeah. what he did, and <laughs> so I flew up there and I did these photos with Kimberl Fowler, who's also legendary, the luxurious horror of Karen Black. Kimberl 
um, did the uh, did my makeup, and so I have theatrical gore makeup. So the gore makeup made me look like I was cut, bleeding, and wounded. And yeah. then I had the idea that I would wear, because um, anhedoniac is the word I constructed. Anhedonia is the, the addiction to the inability to experience pleasure. Oh, wow. So an okay. anhedoniac, an anhedoniac is, is the person who is, who is like that. And I added the act because it was referencing alcoholic and it was uh, referencing maniac. Oh, so this was okay. an album. So this album was dedicated to Michael and to all the members of Florence. And that was the sole purpose of the album, was a commentary on him and those years in Florence. So it's a very um, bold and extremely, you know, in the face kind of a, kind of an album. Mm-hmm. And it came from, from a place of extreme, and I can't even exaggerate that pain. Wow. And I think a lot of people, you know, like I did an interview with a woman in Poland about a month ago, and she was like, this is our favorite album here. You know, we love it. Yeah. And I've had people in Eastern Europe tell me how much that album resonates with them. And wow. so it could be because it's it's like totally in your face with with the pain. And, you know, and then it has a track called Honey with acoustic guitar, which ends with the sound of buzzing bees. So it's, it's uh, uh, and, and then the lyrics, you know, about all the things that, that a person can't do anymore, you know, they, yeah. they can't, they can't kiss, they can't kick, uh-huh. they can't abuse you anymore, yeah. they can't love you anymore, they can't abuse you anymore. So, so it's a, it's a, a love song from the point of view of a person who, who um, is, it's a bittersweet uh, memory. You can't You can draw your own analogy with that, but but yeah. I think that that um, you know, and so then I had directly confronted um, autobiographical facts uh, and, and the song in a Daniac with me sitting at my childhood organ playing that part. It's not a sample; it's live, oh, wow. and I recorded it with a. a Sony cassette recorder, small cassette recorder, sitting on the on the bench with me as I played, because I wanted to get the sound of the pedals and all the action of the keys. Yeah, yeah. So that was what started the song, and I also explored all of my voicing. So I get really high, really squeaky high, really piercing <laughs> high, and then I get very, very low and guttural on some of them as well. And I'm a killer. I'm a killer is autobiographical. It references a, a moment on the last tour when the whole band was looking at me doing a check, like in a state of shock, 
because every single night the set was being tweaked and changed. Oh, wow. Every single night. And this was the no sleep tour. This was the sleep or eat tour. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do both. (laughs) Oh, wow. You're exhausted. Yeah. You're barely able to stand up. You're so wiped out. And yet again, you have to change something. You can't just relax and get into the groove and really give it your all for music. You have to keep remembering, okay, so tonight after the eighth this, we change to that, and then we do that three times, and then we, and then, so change. So so in other words, it was constantly being reworked. So when you have a group of people in a state of exhaustion, tempers flare, Mm-hmm. And um, this eye staring at us, it was, it was basically, it was like staring at me rather. It was like, what, you, do something about it, is what they were saying. Oh, and geez. so at that point, at that point, I just, I just, I, I mean, it was all metaphor. I would never hurt anybody like this, but, right. but I mean, it was all metaphor. At this point in the situation, I was just like, no, we're not going to do it. Right. And then Michael, Will, Michael whirled around. He was like, what? What did you say, Jarbo? Oh. I said, we're not going to do it. We're tired. We just want to play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so a classic, a classic. Wow. It's funny now, but it wasn't funny at the time. Yeah, I can. And, and so oh. he, and so then he was, he was like really angry, as looking at me. And he came up to me. He was just furious because he used to say, "You're undermining my ability. You're undermining my leadership." So at that wow. point, I was just like, at that point, I was so angry, you know, so exhausted. Everybody was looking down, like, help us, Lord, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so at, that point, mm-hmm. at, that point, I said, at that point, I said, you don't understand. You're looking at your killer. <laughs> wow. So that's why that song called out a killer. Oh, wow. And so what I do is, is I change the song around. I changed the song around to okay. to the meaning of it, to where the meaning of it is this person has has killed themselves, and so it's a song about a, a, a psychological suicide, and it's all based on that incident. against the wall you know yeah and so so I introduced the sounds I was on that song I recorded my voice sounding like a siren and so you hear all this and then and then the drums are kind of um you know accentuating the lyrics of of about a, about the heart pounding and, mm-hmm. and and then the ambulance coming and the heart stops on the way so you're dead. Wow. And so, you know, that whole song was based off of that incident. And then I turned it around on myself oh to my just gosh. be a complete a song of total annihilation. And the, and 
that fit into the theme of the the addiction to the inability to experience pleasure, which is a commentary on the entire experience of being in that band. Wow. There's never any pleasure. There's never any pleasure. Wow. That's... It's just suffering hell. Oh, <laughs> Man. And then there's a song called Anadaniac Bottle. And Anadaniac Bottle, I'm singing like a drunken hag. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, wow. So at the end, the person that yeah, recorded that with me, Blanca Castilla, at the end, we have like a whisk, a, a Jack Daniels ball or something, and we roll it across the floor. So you hear the, the empty bottle roll across the floor. At the end of the oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the, the entire project is completely nakedly autobiographic, that, that, that album. So, so that was the first thing out of the gate. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, the original one, when a label came along and wanted to reissue it commercially, mm-hmm. that was not going to happen because of the, uh, well, the artwork. Yeah. So Richard Kern's photographs featured uh, the very first photo was a graphic full frontal nude close up. And I'm wearing a chastity belt that I had made by an artist. Two artists actually worked on it. Oh, and it's wow. got jagged hooks sticking out of it. So, <laughs> so instead of the idea of being, you know, uh, Chase and, and, you know, a demure, oh, you hold the key. Right. No, no. <laughs> and this belt was attempt to have any pleasure whatsoever, whether it's self or someone else, mm-hmm. and you will be ripped to shreds by my hooks. Wow. So there was a very, just, so again, that goes along with the inability to, the addiction to the inability to experience pleasure. Wow. So all the photographs are very snarly and graphic and they're totally nude but they are they ain't sexy <laughs> they're not intended to be yes, sexy right they're intended to scare the hell out of you and oh. they do they did so that so those had to be the most graphic ones had to be removed because the stores would have nothing to do with it now the lyrics themselves have obscenities in them mm-hmm. and so uh, even the lyrics um, I had trouble self manufacturing this I took it to all kinds of printers rejected, rejected, rejected. Wow. And so uh, finally, I had to, ironically, I had to use a, uh, a pornographer to, to do my, to publish wow. my artwork. Oh Can you believe it? I mean, that's how controversial it was. And now wow. today, of course, I don't think this stuff would, people would really, well, it's not for children. Right. But I mean, I guess it depends. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, but I even have it for sale on my site, and then I have components. I still sell the, the raw assemblages of it because yeah. at this point it's a collector's item. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a, you have to sign to be of age to even buy this thing because I don't wow. want any angry parents. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I've never seen a release where you had to, to you know, sign authorization for that's a new one yeah so, I you, know and, and it's because it's because of the the better than the language now, the language yeah. I think a lot I think a lot of contemporary music now may be uh, using language like this but uh, there's, there's some very very extreme uh, language and you know 
if, if it's coming from me, it's um, it's coming in a, in a, with a literary reference. It's it's mm-hmm. not coming from attempting to shock you. Right, right. So you know when you hear some of the things in there uh, about anointing and uh, blessed this and that, those things that are blessed and anointed are extremely, um, I guess you would say. Uh, heretical, but they're right. not heretical. And they're, they're, it's almost like a Shakespearean thing. I mean, they're, they're not okay. heretical from a person who's a Roman Catholic and a Buddhist, which okay. is me. Okay. So it's like, so it's like they're, they're not they're not intended to be heretical. And ironically, one of my biggest uh, supporters, fans, is a Catholic priest. And so I think that he oh, cool. understood the the references there yeah. and the place of pain that that was written from. Okay. Yeah. But but the, but I mean, you know, I've all always did the solo albums because there wasn't enough uh, room for me to fully express myself in Swans. And yeah. so I was always doing my own solo albums, writing my own songs. Some of those songs made their way onto Swans albums, like Volcano went on to soundtracks oh, yeah. for the blind and She Cries and Lavender. And I mean, there were many, oh, many songs that were also turned out into that world, you know? Yeah. But they were, they were personal songs that I, and I like to shoot down the the um, the mysticism of them as often as I can. You know, oh, okay. like lavender developed this whole mystical kind of thing, and 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 of course the reality is we were recording Great Annihilator, and we were stuck in uh, Cabrini Green in a warehouse that had a mosquito infestation, and so uh, we lived in there in a cement room with no windows oh, outside wow. of the studio. And uh, so the place was infested, and and so uh, you couldn't sleep. I mean, you were constantly being attacked. So I learned... Um, I learned um, that if I burned incense, they would leave me alone. So oh. that song is just simply is simply me sitting in that room looking at the names of the incense that are saving me from being attacked. Oh. And so that became the lyrics. Nothing more to it than that. Wow, that's that's amazing. That is. Yeah, so cool. sorry, <laughs> But now with with your releases, you also do a lot of your own artwork for them. Is that something that you've done through the the entire time you've been doing your own albums? Well, here's the thing: it took years to get my work back from record labels contractually and I decided that I wanted to control my work and I decided that if I worked with a boutique record label that had a lot of really cool artists on it that I respected and I felt good about being on their company that I would limit the amount they manufactured and they would never have digital rights I would be able to sell it myself online okay. so I used DistroKid I used DistroKid and some people used TuneCore and all this other stuff I prefer mm-hmm. DistroKid so the other, the old way of thinking was even before digital. 
and streaming. Right, yeah. So they would simply have rights, you know, they would have rights to your album for seven years. And then they would, then when digital started, they were selling it. And I always felt confused about uh, royalties and accountings. And I thought, how can this be that I've got so much work out there and I'm not making money? Yeah. And so finally, when I did write all the legal stuff you have to do, send the notification after the seven years, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now it's mine. So then I didn't want to get into the quagmire of manufacturing stuff. I simply wanted to sell it digitally. And so I entered that world with having it downloadable, not just on my website, but in stores all over the world, have it streaming on places like Spotify, Apple Mm -hmm. Music, et cetera. And I started getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was like, geez, this is amazing. (laughs) And then I kept thinking, I wonder how much money I was actually making. I must have been making something. Yeah, but so so then see so then I was happy. So then I move on to uh, like I said the last one, illusory, consoling sounds. Okay, the reason why I like doing something before a tour, because see this was before COVID. So I was going to go on tour in April of this year of Europe. So this company is based in Belgium. So the idea was, see, I was going to go on the radio, do a live performance, do an in-store signing CDs and records. In other words, it makes sense to go over there, pick up your product to sell at the merch table at your shows. And this is how bands, you know, tour. The merch money is, is money that goes into... Putting gas in the tank, you know, everything, just eating, surviving while you're on tour. So, but the cool thing about Consoling Sounds was they don't do digital. They have no interest in digital. So I timed it out of respect to have it available on Spotify and and upload on my site exactly when the physical editions that they manufactured were ready so that we didn't step on each other. So... And then mm. I even say on my site, if you want the record and you want the CD, because they sent me copies, it might be better for you to buy it from their store since they're in Europe. It might be cheaper postage. So I, I even help in that way, you know. That's awesome. So, yeah. so I, I, so in other words, but then I said the only issue is, you know, if you buy it from me, obviously I'm here, so I'm going to sign it. Yeah. If you buy it from them, it's not going to be signed. Or, I'll, but I'll sign it for you if you bring it to a show whenever the hell I get over to Europe. Again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but see, that's just what I've learned. And so there are companies out there that there's one up in Brooklyn that will actually, if you want to really, really, really want to have records and CDs and you don't want to go off the label, they will make them for you. And I think wow. it's like $30 a record. It's this company. And, and so, wow. so, you know, you, you don't need these. The only reason to go with a company is A, um, they, when they release something, they're going to have publicists that they, uh, hire. Mm-hmm. And that money is probably going to, you know, go against any monies that you will ever make. So you got to consider that. Yeah. But, uh, but the good thing is, is the consoling sounds hired a publicist that was really, really great. So I think the first interview was with Billboard. And then there was wow. an interview with The Wire. And then there was many, many uh, radio interviews and interviews with all kinds of, of variety of, of magazines. And see, that's the power that a really good label has. Is yeah. They have access to these publicists that are just 
amazing. I mean, they must have just an incredible contact list. And then oh, see, um, they also came up with, they also had a uh, concealing sound, a uh, professional, um, and true artist, video artist. And, you know, if you hire this out yourself, if you can't make it yourself, I, I, I don't have the gear to make a video. They, um, they, uh, uh, included this. And so this man, um, made beautiful, uh, music videos for, for tracks from the album. And so then you're, and then the publicist contacts the different, um, media outlets and says, would you like to premiere this video on your website? Oh, okay. So then you have a then you have a premiere of your video, and so yeah, it gets more cool. attention that way. So see this, I've been very very happy with Consoling Sounds. I can't I can't say anything other than I think they're amazing. Oh, so this cool. was a, a a marriage made in heaven. This Consoling Sounds, and they have their own record store. Uh, and it's, it's just beautiful. They oh, have like yeah. a espresso bar in there, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love them. And I was really ready to just knock myself out for them promoting this album. And I was just heartbroken when this COVID thing destroyed my tour. Yeah. This tour had me going to the, every venue I wanted to, had me going to all these art venues that have really nice sound systems. Oh, they're wow. prestigious, you know, they're for audiences that, they're not rock venues. They're, right. they're, um, they're for audiences that are, uh, perhaps more educated and cultured. I'm not saying anything bad about rock venues. It's right. just that I prefer not to play them. A little I more discerning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, hey, I do have a question for you about, you started recording as the living Jarbo. So what's mm-hmm. the significance to using the prefix the living in, in front of your name? Well, the website was the very first thing to have the name the living Jarbo. And, I, and, and I, uh, my own uh, feelings about it are that it was this kind of commentary on music, uh, being a musician or, or a public performing musician in and of itself, such okay. that there's a quasi-saint-like quality to it. Yeah. So that was kind of tongue-in-cheek. Okay. And then um, I had on the original website, I had uh, pictures of St. Demphna all over it. And oh, St. Demphna okay. is the patron saint of anguish uh, and, so, and, 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 and mental suffering. So it was kind of this whole uh, kind of a connection to to Catholicism, and so that was the first. But then, um, in addition to that, the, the Michael released, you know, the, the double album of ninety composites of ninety five and ninety seven tour, which is where the performance of I Crawled is, is on that, and he called it Swans Are Dead. Right. Yes. So yes. To me, to me, it was also a counter to that. Really, okay. the dead, the living Jarbo. Right. Okay. I, so. Wow. That was the whole idea there. Okay. That makes complete sense now that you that you now that I have reference to it. Okay. I I've had guests on the in the past that you've actually collaborated with, and I love it when that happens because it it to me I don't know. I'm so outside of your world at this point. I just think it's, it's just really cool when I when I have people on that I don't even realize at the time have worked together. So you did work with uh, Daniel DiPicciato and Alexander Haka. 
And they we both toured together. Okay. We did a tour together. Yeah. No, well, I mean, they did their own set. And, and what was cool was it was a co-headlining tour. Oh. So we would take turns. He would go on first and he would go on last. It was really just kind of a totally, what you call, democratic, uh, you know, uh, outing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was very, very happy to, to uh, tour with him. We get along great as, as people. And I think that... Um, you know that was that was a lot of fun, and of course I have a, a total history with with Alex. I first met him in 1984 in Berlin when he was uh, when I first met on Sturz und Neubauten on that Swans tour. We and he toured. He was on the famous uh, Kings of Independence tour. <laughs> Which was another legendary <laughs> rock tour. We're all on this giant bus together, right? Yeah. And it's crime in the city solution. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Oh, wow. Swans, uh, The Fall played some shows. Oh, uh, wow. Anyways, yeah, and more bands. I, I can't remember all the bands. Anyway, so, so um, this tour, all traveling together, was something else. And I can <laughs> imagine. <laughs> and I set up. Again, the dork, the geek, the girl scout. <laughs> I sat up front, right behind the bus driver. Oh, okay. I was not part of the party having oh. the back. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, we turn a corner and things would roll across the aisle. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and then occasionally somebody would you know, lean forward and retch into the aisle in the back. Oh, Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> I had not. I had not been around. I had not personally experienced um, heroin users before right. in, in that way. So, so, anyways, so I went into the bathroom at one of our stops, and, and I don't mention her name, but anyway, there was a woman <laughs> there tying up. So, so I saw that, and, and and but again, I was up by the bus driver, so this did not affect me, yeah. other than the cacophony of it. And um, they play country music in, in the in the uh, in the bus. Okay. okay. So anyway, so, <laughs> so we 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 stopped at these different hotels and I'll never forget this one. I had my own room. I insisted on that. So I'm alone in my room and unbeknownst to me, these parties are, are raging and um they took a, at one point, this is so fucking rock. This is so, like, you know, but at one point they took the mini fridge and they, they threw it out the window. Oh, my God. Of the hotel room. And I don't know which particular band members did it. I imagine they're all partying together. So, anyway, yeah. so, so the next day I'm sitting in the bus upright, you know, I haven't had any alcohol or anything. I'm just sitting there. You know. And then the, um, the, the promoter manager of this thing gets on there and my God, she's got circles under her eyes. She looks like hell. Oh, she's, she's just, she's just like, which one of you did it? Which one of you did it? And then she goes up and down and she says about how much money just staying there has cost her because oh. of the destruction oh. of the hotel room. Oh, no. And she's fucking angry as hell. And then she looks at me and she goes, 
Not you, I know. (laughs) 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 But everybody else is going to scream at. Everybody else is in trouble. (laughs) Trouble's good. Everybody else in trouble. (laughs) Because I have good tissue. (laughs) So anyway, that was just true. I was always good tissue. I was never considered cool. So anyway, so... <laughs> it depends on who you talk to. So, so that was leading up to the next thing, which I'm pretty sure was the next show. And that was the famous one where... This is controversial. I have connected with this, this lady uh, helping Marco Porcia with his documentary. I put them in touch because I thought she was an important part of the history. I don't know if she's in the film or not. But anyway, okay. um, she denies what everyone says she did, which was oversell the venue. Okay. She says she didn't. She says not the truth. Or that's a rumor. Okay. Well, the band, the members that were there, all considered that's what she did. So on the tour with Alex and Danielle, I remember mentioning um, uh, this woman, uh, this promoter, and then and Danielle. So who's that? And he said, Oh well, she she oversold the venue, that the show. That so oh. this this and so I found out, um, you know, in the past couple of years that she said she did not that this, something else happened. So yeah. anyway, the point was this place was packed. And I mentioned the lineup to you, so obviously yeah. this show was sold out. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. One of the other bands I just remembered was, uh, you may remember them, I don't know, Butthole Surfers. Oh, my gosh, yeah. From, from Texas. They were also part of this. Oh, okay, so you can just gosh. imagine what this bus is like. <laughs> <laughs> Gibby Haynes, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I get it. <laughs> so, anyway, Butthole Surfers have performed right before Swans. I'm standing in the rafters, you know, ready to go out. And and, and Gibby walks by, and I notice him. He has the same Makai as me. He picks up the sampling unit, and he crashes it violently onto the stage floor. Oh. And I'm like, uh-oh. So then he walks by me, and he looks at me, and he warns me. He says, the smoke, they filled the venue with an oil-based smoke. It's oh, a haze of smoke good. For, for, you know, for, for ambience. Right. Yeah. Like, oh. So I hate all that. I hate it. I won't let that happen to me. So now they use water-based. So anyway, he says, looks at me, he goes, this shit is going to fuck up your, your sampler. It's going to destroy your electronics. Oh. Just you know. Oh, God. I was like, oh, and no. I was just like, oh, no. Yeah. So I prepared for a disaster. So I went out there, and so I made sure to have a towel that I brought I found backstage, and I had the towel hanging on the keyboard stand, and every a whole show, I was wiping my hands, and, and every time I inserted a disc for the new sounds or touch dials, yeah. I was very acutely aware, keep that oil, because it was in the air. Oh, yeah, yeah. Off of the electronics. Oh, God. And still the thing malfunctioned because the humidity and the hell of the dust particles, I imagine, hanging in the air. Yeah. The thing malfunctioned during the show. God. And I was mortified. You know, it was a big show. Yeah. Big show. So there's this great photograph somebody took where Michael was standing at the keyboard just scowling, looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I have like this expression on my face of trying to remain calm in the face of, you know, total anxiety. Oh, but it's like there's nothing you could do, you know, yeah. except that wait for this thing to come back to life, you know. Yeah, it's out of your control at that point. So, so this whole time that we're performing, I imagine, or us, or because or, I was, you know, after the show, trust me, I did not want to hang out backstage with all that going on back there. Oh, all yeah. their friends and you know, fans and all those people. No. Oh. So I, um, my agenda would be to take my stuff, pack it up, walk out the door, get in a cab, and get the hell out of there. Right, yeah. So that's what I did all the time. I was famous for that. So anyway, so... We're done. I immediately get my stuff, personal stuff, walk out, go into a waiting car. I go back. They take me back to where we're all the, all the bench thing. Drive by, flames, overturned cop car, flames in the Whoa. air, angry mob, the riot going on. Oh They've overturned God. a German cop car. Wow. And they set it on fire. Oh, my God. All these fans, lots and lots and lots of them, were unable to get into the venue. Wow. Because the venue, apparently there were more tickets purchased than there was capacity for the venue. So they decided to to have a riot. Wow. Yeah. So I remember I remember I turned I mean, drove right I turned my head back. I was like, Oh my god. Just the whole thing's gonna go up and try yeah. <laughs> Oh wow. Just violent. That's incredible. So this is a legendary. So see, Alex was there, you know, too, yeah. performing, you know, and he, I think he was the prime in the city solution. So obviously that we reminisced about that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, remember that time the club almost burned to the ground? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you, oh, unbelievable. Oh, I, that's that's be frightening. Oh. I know, and then you know, this happened all the time. Like, like in the early years, like, like we did a show in Paris. It may have been our very first show in Paris, because I remember since I had lived there for a while, briefly, I lived there for a while. I, I remember, I remember um, Michael saying, "Okay, can you direct us to the venue?" Because <laughs> 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 it's a giant city. And I was like, "Well, it's been two years. Let me try to." Okay, well. We're, now tried to get us in the general direction. Right. You know? Oh God. But anyway, this show. Oh my God. We were supposed to be the headliners, right? Okay. We were the headliners. We were the last to go on. And there were all these French bands playing before us, like an insane amount. Oh jeez. Yeah, you know, ten or something. It was oh, ridiculous. Wow. And so, and so there was this venue was in a place where there was a curfew. So all these bands are crammed in this tiny dressing room. Oh, and Michael is humiliated, and he's trying to stretch and work out because he was very athletic in those days during yeah. the show. And he had no room, and I was getting angrier and angrier. And he was saying to me, oh, this doesn't look good, Gilberto. I don't know. This doesn't look good about getting paid. So oh. I saw the, the, the promoter, and I went up to him, and I confronted him, and I said, uh, pay us now. We're not going on. Pay us now. Oh, wow. And he was like, you know, dragging his, dragging his feet, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pay us now. Mm-hmm. Pay us now. Yeah. Right now. Now. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so he came. Now, my recollection is he came back and gave me some money. Okay. So anyway. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, so, but this was ugly. 
Because it was too many bands. And, of course, when they got up there, it was impossible to get them off. Yeah, oh, yeah. So here it comes. Here it comes. Time for us to go on. The promoter comes back there again. Um, okay, so now you only have 20 minutes oh. to play because of the curfew. <laughs> We're the headliner. So we go out there. So Michael, who you know, speaks French, German, so he went up to the microphone, and he said in French, Demand your money back. Demand oh. your money back now. Wow. The mother has told us we can only play for 20 minutes. Wow. I suggest you d- demand your money back and, and, you know, ask the promoter what he's done, whatever. And he says all this in French. Oh, my God. So the audience starts rioting. So we start playing <laughs> one song. I'm pretty sure it was your property. So we oh, start they- playing. A 20-minute version of your property. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And on, on the keyboard, all I'm doing is bum, 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 bum. That's all I'm yeah. doing. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Which is the refrain. And so an Al's, you know, when Al's with Dan, he's grunging on the bass, you know. And so, so, so the audience, when we're done, right, they're angry as shit because they want more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> They break out the, the windows in the front of the venue. They break them out. Oh they God. bust all the windows of the venue. Oh. And the French police come. And they come in there, and there's all kinds of violence, and everything's throwing all over the roof. And oh. they literally had to duck to get out of there. Oh, jeez. And we go back, and Michael's like, grab your stuff, you get out of here. <laughs> And oh. We had to literally run out of this venue because it's riot and the police were everywhere. Oh my god! And then there was a time in Switzerland. You know, we were forbidden to perform in Switzerland. We were banned for a while really? because we played this show. Yeah, we played this show with the band Young God, the Swiss band. And of course, that name comes from Michael's song Young God. Right. Yeah. So the Swiss band and the band had been produced by Rolly Mossman, who had been a drummer at one time in Swan. Yes. So anyway, so the band Young God is opening for us, and so we played this show, and I'm standing there, just you know, and they have what they call called uh, volume meters, limiters. Okay. And this thing would go off and alert the police. Oh, my God. So the police, yeah, we had to leave, I don't know how many venues, because they had these volume limiters. Wow. And so Michael didn't want us to compromise our sound by turning down. So I'm playing, and um, kids are throwing stuff, it's getting very violent. And then uh, the next thing I feel is a hand on my shoulder, and it's one of the Swiss uh, police. Oh, my God. And stop playing. So we have to stop playing. Wow. So that was there wasn't any riot, of course, because it was Switzerland. But <laughs> no, yeah, you, yes. <laughs> but I mean, we, you know, it was again the police were there. That's incredible. It's like a running theme, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, amazing. Marco in his documentary, you know, he has a scene. I don't know where he found the footage, but I was telling the story about I think it was Manchester or somewhere where. Where the, uh, you know, this is, this is when I started opening the show, like the land of the slaughter, like a sacrifice. Go out there alone on your knees and sing blackmail or something. Yeah. And, and so I'd sing on the edge of the stage and, you know, and, and these boys, I don't know if there were any girls there at all that night, the, the, the boys were like, show us your tits. Yeah. Show us your tits. 
Yeah, I I I saw that in the in the documentary. Yeah. So of course I'm singing a melodic song, you know, and I'm like <laughs> I just kept on going. I had to ignore yeah. Al, I had to ignore the audience. <laughs> Oh my gosh! This violence, and this is—you can understand why. In the later years, when I started getting my own following, and there were more and more uh, females in the audience, and they would gather around the keyboard, and there was a lot of applause when I would step up to the mic, and a lot of applause when I would finish. It, it, I mean, a lot. Yeah. That that you know, it got kind of competitive. On the last tour, Michael would say, "Oh, you got more applause than me." <laughs> I would say. I would say, are you noticing that? <laughs> so, so it got kind of weird, like, it got kind of weird. And, and, but I yeah. mean, from my point of view, from those later years when there were more women and when there were more of my crowd, my crowd, my audience was normally like goth, you know, like I could see because mm-hmm. everybody around the keyboard would be wearing all black. And right. so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they would start leaving me presents at the keyboard, oh, roses, wow. jewelry. Oh. Uh, I don't know how much jewelry and, and notes and all kinds of presents would be waiting for me when I went on stage. And, and so it's particularly painful when you consider this is your first real pro. Uh, experience coming from the big city, you can understand why, um, you know, you're young, it's your first pro thing, your identity is entirely formed in that band, yeah. and um, uh, uh, why it feels like your family is, has disowned you when, when it's terminated and you're not uh, considered again, you know, so, so I think that this is, this is why I had the post-traumatic stress disorder was um, when I heard from fans that he was starting it again, because I never was told. I just heard it from fans. Oh, wow. um, I started having nightmares, and then I lost about 30-something pounds. Oh, wow. And uh, when my ribs were sticking out, and, and I, um, I I started having dreams about tours and about recordings, and I, 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 uh, I became unwell. Oh, and and I think that I had to go into therapy and uh, even a, even a, even hypnosis, medical hypnosis, and all this to kind of come to terms with it. And um, I forced myself as therapy to go see the first show without me, and wow. it was in Atlanta, and and um, it was. Uh, uh, yeah, it was hard. Oh, it was hard. And, and, and the interesting, the interesting thing was, and of course, it made worse because I knew everybody up there, you know, except for the bass player. I'd worked with everybody else. Yeah. I had toured with Christoph. I toured with Norman. I had, I had toured with uh, Phil, Phil Tulio. I, I had not worked with Thor at that time and I had not worked with the bass player, but, but I mean, it was kind of like seeing your relatives up there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And, and, um, and, and so once I got over that, the kind of a, a emotional trauma of it and just focused on the music, it was like they were speaking in a vocabulary that I understood. Yeah. And so it was interesting because I thought, shit, man, I could totally be working on this. Like, I get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand what they're doing. Wow. And um, so the, the joy of that took over. 
Oh, okay. And that's what uh, would help me to deal with it. Uh, because I owned it, because it was weird. It was so familiar. It was so familiar. And even though the sound is is not, you know, is different, and 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 I'm not a part of the last few records. I mean, it's it's a familiar soundscape. Yeah, it's familiar. No matter who's involved in it, it's familiar. So I can't explain it other than everything has a almost a uh, Wagnerian. Uh, I don't want to be pompous, but almost like a Wagnerian passage of instrumental uh, 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 wall that is is a trademark sound. Yeah, and that and that mean. is something that that I um, I remember, you know, very well, obviously. But I mean, I think that um, I guess from my point of view, that's one of the things that made it so hard. And um, also uh, working with neurosis, doing a was screaming loud. I did six shows with him, and they were all amazing, all all completely sold out. The one in London was just unbelievable. People from all over Europe came to it. And then, you know, played at legendary venues, you know. Wow. And I think that um, that reawakened in me, you know, the, the, the volume and the fact that I feel at home in that decibel level, the fact that I can work in that realm. If you put me there, I can adapt to it. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of talking about some of the behavior of Michael, I mean, come on, we were in, we were a couple, and plus he's openly talked about everything I talk about. He's encouraged yeah. me to talk about what happened in Switzerland when I went at that confrontation at the at the uh, sound check. Yeah. He has encouraged me to talk about it, and so so I think that um, you know I wouldn't say anything below the belt. I would oh, just yeah, yeah. talk about talk about what is common knowledge. Well, he's even used some of that in his music. Music. Like some some of the re, exactly. the recordings that you guys have had arguing ended up in the music itself. Yes, you see through me. Uh, you see through me. That is an actual cassette recording that I made when he came in at five in the morning, yeah. and I I wanted to to try to to show him the next day what he was like. And of course, that's just an edited part of the of the total recording. other than himself yeah. in terms of living with someone like that. And the thing is, I've learned with certain behavior patterns in general with that type of personality or, or, or that type of disease, which it is, yeah. is, um, you know, they will go from extreme, uh, I guess, painful, almost self-destructive behavior or, or anger or lashing out to, you know, showering you with gifts. So they go back and forth. 
so it's a kind of a, a predictable thing, and uh, it's a, it's an, a long, ugly road. And so I think that um, you know it's a common problem. So I think it's really good that he addresses that in his work. And yeah. I always felt queasy uh, before he recognized his situation. I always felt queasy on stage performing the song "Alcohol the Seed." I never uh-huh. liked that because I and I confronted him about it and I said, you know, you were giving the kids because I always looked the audience as the kids, you know, and I was right. like, we're giving the kids the message. They're looking up to us. They're standing there looking up, yeah. and you're giving the kids the message: I need alcohol. You know, I need yeah. alcohol to to open up my you know my creativity. think we should be, you know, telling this is a, and, and he was like, oh, well, you understand, that's based on, I just finished the, the novel, you know, the, the, the story, John Barleycorn, you know, John yeah. Barleycorn must die. Right, and I was right. like, but that, but okay, okay, but you don't say that, and I was like, yeah. you're still saying <laughs> yeah. And then he did, uh, uh, to, to the credit, you know, and Bill Reefland was horrified. Bill Richlin, whom I adored, and he yeah. and his wife were, were basically my family members. I loved them. I had such an intimate connection oh. with both of them. Creative, like angels. I mean, these people were a powerhouse couple of, of, of creativity. To stay with them, to be around them, was truly one of the joys of my life. And I, oh, anyway, so, so Bill, oh, horrible, like one year from each other. Yeah, the same month, one year later. Oh, so... I think I think that um, I think Bill recorded "You See See Me" was um, you know kind of taken aback, and and I and I agreed with with Michael's response, which was it's like Virginia Woolf, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, okay. which you know your your listeners it's a well that they should explore mm-hmm. who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <But> anyway, <laughs> it's, it's a film if you don't want to uh, read about the the, yeah. the, the play or the story. Yeah. Uh, uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Right. And um, so it explores this kind of thing with drinking. And, and I think that um, it was a, a bold, and, and, and in my opinion, it's a difficult listen, but it's also deeply poetic. I mean, it's, it's very powerful. And you have a very uh, melodic piano part that makes it extremely sad. And so I think it's a masterpiece of a song myself. Yeah. So you have to be in the right framework of mind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> to go through it. But it's an effective work of art. Yeah, oh, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. And, and and as is Illusory, which I actually love. I've been listening to it a lot. I've been, I've been going back and, and trying to listen to uh, as much of your work as I could to prepare for this. And Illusory is to say... The music, but the artwork is also absolutely beautiful. I absolutely yeah. That's that. Jim Flora, he's an artist in Paris. That is uh, Pythia, and Pythia, you know, is the oracle. So she is the oracle. Who uh, many paintings have been done done of her, and and the, the, there were many 
many oracles, and they um, they were priestesses. And so they were the ones that would have the visions, and they would tell, you know, that they would prophesize what was to come and what actions were to take. Okay. And so this all came about, this idea of, I was, you know, I'm always uh, studying about uh, illusory nature, because that's part of uh, the, the Tibetan Buddhism books that I study and, 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 and readings that I, that I study. Okay. And so illusory nature... And then, uh, then um, the last album that I did, the, the, the Cut of the Warrior, a um, press, and uh, I, I think it was Italy. Anyway, they they said that um, I was the the, the true Pythia of the American underground. Oh wow! And that's like that's the main quote when you go to my about page at yes. the top, because and, and and I and I thought about what that meant, and I thought. You know, I kind of, I'm not, you know, true. Well, that's subjective. But are you saying, you know, you are an oracle or, or, you know, you use visions to convey a message? I would say yes. I completely agree with that Mm -hmm. definition of of my work. So this is what started the thing. And so I told him I wanted a, uh, an image for him to draw an image of Tithia on the cover. So this is, that's who that is. And she's holding the oleander. And so some theories are that she chewed the oleander and that uh, the priestesses would also burn the oleander. Uh-huh. And so the, what happens with the oleander is it releases a hallucinogenic substance in the smoke. So that is one of right. the theories. Uh, and then, of course, another theory is there was ethylene gas coming up from the cave where she, where she was that would lead to. But then this is debatable because some say she did not speak in gibberish. She spoke in, in articulation. Well, because of the fact that there are some saying that she spoke in a kind of rapture and a kind of uh, would use words that are understandable in addition to... to um, almost like a gibberish kind of a, a multi-syllable syllable, uh, language that mm-hmm. was not fully articulated. That's what led to me exploring that on my own. Okay. So you have tracks where I am using sounds about consonants, but it's not a defined language. You know, another like concept album, as, as you were, <laughs> about about Pythia, <laughs> and so it's all about illusion. So um, to say, oh, what language is that? Well, it's an illusion. Okay. And then you go to the final track, which I wanted to visit. It's not a direct hit, which I've already done before on something called the Rally. Okay. The Rally has a recording from a particular politician's rally. Okay. That I manipulated and I took the part with the chanting and I emphasized that along with the sounds, the general roar of the crowd, you know, the, yeah. the, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd, the circus. So I interpreted that rally as a circus. Okay. And, and so I, I did a piece called The Rally, which is absolutely, I've had people tell me it's just chilling because, I mean, 
they can kind of tell what who, what it is. Right. So this was not directly to do to redo Man of Hate was not directly um, an aim at okay. the person in the White House right now. It was right. it was about if you because I wrote that song on thir- for Thirteen Mass some years ago. Yes. It's my very first solo album. Yeah. So. The song, if you just analyze the lyrics, which is perfect, you know, in terms of the message to send out, the message now, which is why we did it, is that it says, we claim it's not our fault. You know, we're actors. And our, you know, we're, we're actors. We claim it's not our fault. And, and so I think that, you know, it, it just seemed to me that th- this message of blame, was something to explore that you cannot blame what you've been part of. You should analyze your own behavior and your own self before you start pointing the finger. Ah, uh, yes. So I think it was it was just kind of that idea about following with the with the um, you know with the entire uh, message of of illusion. Okay. And so, and I wanted to do a stripped down, just raw vocals. And then I do uh, overdubs, different voices to, to give the sense of, uh, of more than one person. Cause, okay. cause it's basically it's a theater piece because, you know, my major in, in school was, was English literature. And so, so I studied a lot of Elizabethan language. And so it, it uses, uh, it references an Elizabethan play before, in a court, you know, a court right. before the Lord and ladies. And, but the pivotal, the, the, the pivotal moment with all the, all, with, with the narrator describing what you're seeing, you know, d- describing the lovers, you know, going up in the sky with their hair, uh, pulling out their hair as they rise towards the sky and yes. plucking feathers and leather wings. Watch pivotal line there his luck is decreed by angel cain but mm. the pivotal moment for me is um you know before you ever see the mad hey and then you say we claim it's not our fault you know we're actors in our guilty mission for uh, shame is on the fault not our pretty submission so it completely applies to the political arena <laughs> right, yeah <laughs> and then you know i think in particular well, you can almost see a play happening with some of the leaders we have right now. Yeah. You know, reveal yeah. my good confession, what I hope to gain. I admit to grand obsession yeah. in my veins. Mm. So this kind of grand obsession is another thing I thought was apt right now. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, a reviewer for... Um, it's a really good uh, a little uh, magazine. A, a, a reviewer who has always been supportive of the work um, said some really nice things. I gave it a 10 out of 10, which I was really honored oh, wow. to, to get that rating. Not that I believe in the rating system, <laughs> right. but I, I, I think that, um, you know, for a metal magazine, to, to give me the only thing about it was I thought, oh, 
how did I fail with that? Because he thought that you see, he thought that illusory was a res- the song illusory was a response to you see through me. Uh-huh. It's not a response to you see through me. It is. It's actually the idea of it was struggling with who one is and struggling with how you define who you are and what is real and how has time changed how you think about yourself. And is this what you are? Is this who you are? And so there's this whole kind of struggle that that I, as the narrator, am having in in my healing from all the the pain. And and but but you know the comment is, "May time is time heals." Well, is time itself real? Because it's also an illusion. And so, so what she so it's a song for the self. It's a song analyzing the self. You know, like, am I authentic? Am I authentic, or am I an illusion? And so at the end, you know, the pivotal climax is, is, is another voice saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm still her. So it's a song to me, you know, and, and to, to other people that are feeling, uh, kind of bewildered or lost, you know, and, and, and so it's not a, it, it is definitely not, uh, um, a public rebuttal to a song from all those years ago <laughs> from Jane Lee. It's definitely, it wasn't intended that way. Right. Well, it's fantastic. The, I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying going back and checking out some of the stuff that I'd, I'd unfortunately missed by not, you know, hearing it, but, you know, not following Swans and your you know, solo work since then, but, but I'm going back now and I'm, I'm really enthralled by it. Like, like the conduit I absolutely love that album that that to me it, album is that's it's on a constant loop for me right now and it's that that's I could love that kind of music it's it's kind of like almost like a sexy red era King Crimson it's 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 just the music is just amazing <laughs> Absolutely love that. That it, it, it sounds like an improvisational guitar, and it, it that yeah. does sound very improvisational and very King yeah. Crimson-ish in that regard. And, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm always drawn to. That was uh, uh, part of a uh, at that time huge undertaking, which was it was a package. It was sold as a package. Oh, so yeah. if you supported that project. You got all this stuff, one of which was the um, itineraries, the tour itinerary, which was very oh, thick, as you can imagine, yeah. from Swans. So I had to, so in other words, I didn't realize how many people were going to support it and buy it. <laughs> and so the paper and printing, mass producing those itineraries alone ate any profit that was made. Oh, and um and then yeah, so the so so in other words I reached out to 
you know, the fan base at that time and said that I would, if they submitted something, no matter what it was, I was going to say it. Oh, wow. And a song. And so I got these crazy kind of <laughs> just all over the place <laughs> words and phrases. Oh my god! And I couldn't I couldn't figure out a way to um, blend them together, like how to make it sound cohesive in any yeah. way. And so I decided I decided to go out onto the front porch. This is insane during a thunder and lightning storm. <laughs> oh my god! And put a mic by the screen door and oh. record the storm. Oh, wow. And so, you know, of course that could have been, you know, electric, electrocution city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my so, first so, thought. So that particular, that particular track with the fans submitting different names. I mean, one of them is the, is the band they like, Six Six Butnick. I mean, come on. <laughs> so I, um, <laughs> I said all this stuff. I didn't edit anything. I just said it all. Wow. I just said whatever they told me to say. And so uh, so I put that against the sound of, you know, a lightning strike. That's so amazing. that's why you hear this repetitive lightning strike. Russell, Starting Angel, Alan, Persevere, Fabio, Western Action, Dertro, Hippocon, James, Ryan, Dave, Elizabeth, Rice. Because I had to come up with some kind of creative way <laughs> yeah. to, to fulfill what I told them. I promised them I was going to say it. Wow. That's incredible. So then, I couldn't do it all at once, right? The master had the manufacturer of the CD and all this. So, so get all these things photocopied. And I think they got more, too. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, so... Some of the, the, I was able to send things out, you know, as they came, and I didn't want people to wait. So I'd send right. this out, and I'd send that out. So this whole project was getting very expensive. And then one guy in California wrote, he was like, I don't like you. You did. Oh my <laughs> God. You have taken too long to get me my whatever it was. And, oh, I, and I was like, oh, Jesus, I'll never do this again. I was yeah. like, I'll never do this again. I'll never <laughs> promise. Oh, my God. All this stuff. And I just, I didn't realize, you know, that it was going to be such a big deal to, to make all this stuff. Oh. It was really, and you know, this is, this is what happened when the Kickstarter started. Um, people, people, uh, now they have advisors, I think, but, uh, but people would be a- asking for a certain amount to fulfill that project. And inevitably they had forgotten about the postage cost or they'd oh, forgotten man. about all this stuff and they, they would not make money. Oh gosh. So, yeah. It'd be a fortune sending this stuff out. It'd be a fortune. Oh God. Yeah. Jeez. So. I mean, today to send even anything at all to Europe is unbelievable. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. I've, I've, it's like as much as the thing itself. Yeah. So. Oh, unbelievable. Well, Trevor, I don't, yeah, I'm I, glad you're listening to it. I'm just glad. Oh, I, I'm loving it. No, I, I just wanted to say that I've, you know, I've kept you for, you know, over two hours. I know you've got some, I'm, I'm okay, sure you've got sure. some things to, to do. and uh, But I wanted to find out how people can support you. You've got a, a lot of the stuff 
still available through your website? Is it your entire discography still available oh, yeah. through the website? Well, there's things on the site that aren't available um, elsewhere, like Mystery of Faith is not available digitally or, or streaming yet. Okay. Um, that's that's like a composite of a bunch of songs that were left on the, you know, cutting room floor when things are reissued. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff on there that isn't it isn't. Uh, but but you know, other than that, things are are streaming and download stores. But on my uh, on store, things are downloadable at a at a higher uh, a higher res than they are in places like iTunes. Okay. But yeah, okay. no, it's all up there. And then I make stuff. I paint constantly. I get lots of orders for paintings. Oh, awesome. I do energy field paintings of transference of energy, you know, which basically amounts to me like putting my hand on it for a very long time, tracing okay. my hand. And then I do layers and layers and layers. It can take uh, two weeks. Wow. And I do a lot of very, very elaborate painting. And that's, that's something that a lot of people people uh, seem interested in so but that's that's like a huge huge undertaking as opening the door to the painting oh, and that started with me painting soundtracks I started painting these soundtracks box sets and that just blasted I was getting orders from all over the world oh wow and and, and multiple box sets and uh, now, see, that's gone. It's out of print. It's, they're not making them anymore. So, so I myself, if someone's like dying to have one, yeah. then I myself have to look for it from a reseller and oh. buy it for, you know, 300 more hundred dollars. And then wow. for me to make any money at all with my painting, I can't charge under $600 or I'm not going to make any money at all. Right. So that's when I stay on there, things out of print, send me your empty box and I'll do that for you, you know? Oh, thanks. <laughs> so I, I do, I do all this stuff. And when children of God is reissued, I will be painting that. Oh, wow. So that's going to be next down the pipeline, as far as I understand. And so I'll be painting the front and back of that as well. And, and, and while those are in print, those, of course, will be more reasonable. Yeah. But, I mean, no, it's all on the website. And um, other than that, on the stores, I, 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 you know, Spotify has a lot of stuff. So I just, I have a playlist on Spotify, which is not just my stuff. There's some other stuff that I think references okay. stuff I've done. And that. That playlist is called Projection, okay. and one of the one of the songs in Projection is "You See Through Me." Oh wow! So it's it's yeah, and there's you know a song from uh, Annette Peacock on there, and just just different people that I think reference the idea of projection, which is yeah. you know a, a psychological term. Okay, so that, <laughs> that's on. Are you on uh, any of the social media uh, platforms where people can follow you and keep up yeah, with what you're I doing? Am, I am. I am. I have everything. You okay. know, you can see you can see links to all that on my homepage. Awesome. All right. All those, you know, um, I mean, but I don't do what some people do. I don't have everything tied in where you post something and it automatically goes everywhere. Yeah. I don't see the point in doing that. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't see <laughs> that either. And, and, then, and then the only place I get political with re, reposting stuff, redoing stuff would be Twitter. On Twitter, I will occasionally, yeah. uh, you know, retweet something that's political. But yeah. I stay off of that on 
Facebook because I learned the hard way and all the haters out there. Yeah. And I really don't want to be. And if someone posts something, I put something innocent up there that I think is attractive or nice, something says something negative, I just delete their commentary and I'll probably ban them. So uh, I mean, I, just, I don't want the negative energy. Yeah. I don't need the negative energy in my life. No, exactly. So, so I don't like cynicism and uh, sarcasm if I post something. Like I posted something about a florist that put flowers around the streets of New York on the street yeah. and some guy posted some kind of negative thing about it like yeah oh. well you know that, that, that those pictures that's just clickbait and yeah oh, you know, and I was, oh, that is so, I was, can't you just enjoy the idea yeah. of flowers donated by a florist on the streets can't yeah. you just why do you have to ruin the joy you know I, I, exactly. I it. good for you God, I can't stand when people do that <laughs> well I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and telling me some amazing stories I've, I've really had a great time talking to you and, and if you're always welcome to come back on if you ever want to tell more stories or or discuss okay, something great. completely different than than your career i would definitely love to have you back on and just just chat oh good yeah like joe rogan yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> jarro thank you so much it really has been wonderful speaking with you and i'm definitely loving going back and and discovering all of your work it's really been wonderful to listen to oh thank you it's very kind of you to say and Thank I, you. It, I, I appreciate you inviting me on. Oh gosh, I was I was kind of, I was nervous about doing it because you've got such a, a, a you're one of the most prolific people I've had on the show. So I knew I wouldn't have mm -hmm. time to to go back and listen to everything and, and absorb it all. So I was nervous about doing this. So I, I really thank you so much for being kind to me, a, a, a Swan a Jarbo newbie, and uh, telling me some great stories. It's been great. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 